Our scripture reading uh, this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verse 1 through 3, and verse 11b through 32. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arm around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now this elder son, his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became, became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all this, these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
What spiritual discipline are you practicing this Lenten season? Now, I can probably predict half of you probably thought you felt guilty because you haven't been doing anything. And then the other half, maybe you're like, yes, I know. I've been doing it and I'm doing well. Well, if you are doing something, I would love to hear about it after service. If you're not doing anything, I know we're already about halfway through Lent, um, but it's still not too late to start something. So I thought I would begin my sermon with um, some simple Lenten practice ideas that you can maybe start practicing from now. Here are three creative disciplines that I liked that were posted on umc.org, the United Methodist Church website. Number one, apologize to someone that you have wronged. So when we think of repentance, usually we think of asking God for forgiveness. Well, our sins hurt our neighbors. So if you have wronged anybody, spend Lent um, going to those people and apologizing and asking for forgiveness. Number two, tell others that you love them. I love you might not be readily on your lips. That might not be the usual way that you communicate your love. Or we just might not have said it in a while. So whatever the reason that might be, spend time during Lent saying those three words, I love you, to somebody that you love. Number three, serve in the church. I added this because it's Gail's retirement, and I thought Gail would love this one. (laughs) Try serving somewhere in the church that you normally wouldn't. Don't wait for someone to ask you. Just offer yourself in service. The season of Lent is a great time for self-reflection as we spend more time praying, reading scripture, adding other spiritual disciplines like the one I just mentioned, or fasting. It's a way for us to claim, God, we need more of you in our lives. The most common practice people tend to take on, of course, is fasting, giving up something we enjoy as a symbol of repentance. You truly get to know people's vices when you ask them that typical question during Lent, what are you giving up for Lent? So, what am I giving up for Lent? In the past, I've given up video games, meat, soda, McDonald's, fast food, eating out. You you may see a pattern emerging here. It's mostly about food. And Korean soap operas. So, yes, there was a time in my life I truly believed that Korean soap operas operas were competing with God in my life. So now you know a little bit more about me. (laughs) So this year, I decided to give up soda again, and it has been a very enlightening experience. First of all, I've become more aware of how often and how intense my cravings are. Oh, how I love this heavenly nectar of sweet bliss. If there was a hymn for soda, I would know every word by heart. I pray, God, help me to want you in my life this often and this intensely, always. I have also become aware of how often I try to circumvent, justify, and even build fences around fences around soda. So, is diet soda really soda? I don't know. It doesn't taste like soda. You know, it doesn't taste as good, so I don't think it's really soda. Also, did you all know that there's actually 46 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter, which means the six Sundays in Lent are not technically part of Lent. In fact, they are technically little Easters 
So I can totally have a soda on Sunday, and I'm totally not breaking the commitment. It, it, the struggle is real. On the flip side, when my resolve and commitment is strong and I drink anything that is not water and is somewhat sweet, like orange juice, sweet tea, lemonade, I become super legalistic and judge myself harshly and think, how is this not like soda too? I begin to forget that I'm not trying to earn God's favor here by practicing this spiritual discipline. God's love and favor has already been given to me, to all of us, through God's forgiveness and mercy. I keep forgetting about grace. In a way, I try to deserve what I already have. And I suspect that part of this has to do with the fact that we humans are so conditioned in the punishment and reward system. How many of us grew up hearing or said to our children or grandchildren, if you finish your vegetables, you will get dessert. I suppose this method gives us some gains because those vegetables do get eaten. But too many times, we have also seen the punishment and reward system give people a disparaging sense of self. I see this play out in the youth that I work with in the church. The punishment and reward system says, if you get good grades, you go to a good school. If you go to a good school, you get a good job. If you get a good job, you get good pay, on and on and on. So, what if you didn't get good grades? What if you didn't go to a good school? What if you didn't get a good job? So much of our young people's self-worth is tied to what they do and not do. Now, what about the rest of us? What arbitrary unit do we use to measure who we are? I remember meeting a new person at uh, the church I served previously in Cary. She was visiting our church because her church kept trying to convince her that she should measure her worth by the health of her children. She had two children with autism. And her church told her that she must have done something wrong because of her boys. The day she came to our church, our senior pastor was preaching on John chapter 9, when Jesus' disciples saw a blind man and asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Let's just say that she heard the gospel preached that day and joined our church. The punishment and reward system can seriously mess with our sense of self. It can really get us lost. It may feel like being in a giant maze and we are defined by how far we are along that maze. When we go the wrong way, because we will, we get shocked. And when we go the right way, we expect to get life's reward pellets. I believe this kind of thinking is what made Jesus tell this parable of the two sons. You can just hear the perfect setup in verse 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners, those who deserved punishment, were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, those who deserved rewards, were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Then Jesus goes on to tell us about the man who had two sons. The younger son asks for his share of inheritance. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't know any other way to interpret this other than to say that the son does a very terrible, terrible thing here. It's not just about the money. It's about a relationship. Inheritances are typically given when somebody dies. So the son is either saying to his father, I want you to die now so I can have my inheritance, or he's declaring that he will live his life like his father is dead to him. Emphasis on terrible. Then the parable goes from terrible to even worse. The younger son squanders all the things that he was given in dissolute living, finding himself far from home, hungry, and completely broke. Jesus tells us how far he really was from home, telling us that the son finds a job feeding pods to pigs. Now, we must remember that no Palestinian Jew would ever be caught dead near pigs. But this son is so hungry, so far gone that he not only goes near pigs, not only works with pigs, he was about to eat what the pigs were eating. The younger son was lost in every sense of the word. He didn't know who he was anymore. But Jesus continues the story with, but when he came to himself. The younger son has an epiphany of sorts. While he does not have it all figured out, he knows that who he has become is not who he truly is. He knows he is meant for more. He knows being the father's hand is way better than the nightmare he is living, so he plans to go back home. And he begins to practice. Practice what he will say to his father when he sees him. And he finally figures out the perfect thing to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. And so he packs up and heads back home. And when he makes his final approach, something unexpected happens. These were not the actions of a normal Palestinian father. His father runs, runs to his son, embraces him, and kisses him. He was clearly waiting for his son's return with love and concern on his mind. The son tries to complete his rehearsed speech, but before he can finish, his, fa his father has his servants dress him in the best robe, puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He then calls for a party, declaring what was dead is now alive and what was lost is now found. This was an occasion for, not for a punishment, but for a celebration. Now, of course, the story is not over. There is the unresolved issue of the older son. When he finds out that his father had thrown a party celebrating his irresponsible little brother's return, he stands outside pouting. And the father once again breaks the cultural norm by leaving the party out of concern for his second son. The father pleads with his son to join the celebration with him. 
But the older son is quite livid. Listen, he says, for all these years I've been working with a, as a slave, uh, like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. When, when his son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. On a side note, I love how he embellishes how hard he has worked and totally exaggerates the shortcomings of his brother. He has worked like a slave. While, his, you know, I'm sure he hasn't really worked like a slave, while his little brother devoured the inheritance with prostitutes. How does he know that? He hasn't even seen his brother yet. In a punishment and reward system, his argument certainly has merit. It's simply not fair. At this, the father responds, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. I have to offer up a confession as a pastor, and this is proof that even pastors, we, we need to keep learning. Do you know what the word prodigal means? I would venture to guess that most of you think it means what I have always thought it meant. Someone that is lost and is now found. Someone that has left and now has returned because we say the prodigal son has returned. But that's not true. The definition of prodigal, according to MarianDictionary.com, is actually spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. So, if the title of this parable is The Prodigal Son, I wondered, who is the title referring to? While the younger son frivolously spent his inheritance in self-indulgence, the older son was just as wasteful by trying to earn what he already had through the sheer sense of duty. The tragedy of this story is not that one son is selfish while the other son is angry. The tragedy was that neither son trusted their father's unconditional love. They didn't understand that they were loved not because of what they have done or what they have not done. Their father's love was already theirs because that is who their father is and who they are as his sons. In our new understanding of the word prodigal, I wonder if we even have a prodigal father in our story. To me, the father seems to be quite wasteful, wastefully extravagant with his love. One of my favorite preachers, um, Nadia Bolsweber, said this about this parable. Quote, I like to imagine that the older brother finally relented and came to the party. And after refusing to dance or eat or drink anything, the groove of that Marvin Gaye song was too much to resist, and his head start to, uh, started bopping and toes started to tap. And the next time a waiter passed with a tray of champagne glasses, he took one. Eventually, he smiled at his younger brother from across the room, and the resentment and jealousy melted away. And when they embraced, 
It was as though the heart of their father burned between them, and again they loved each other. And soon the younger brother started helping in the fields again, and they both became agents of the same grace and mercy and love and reconciliation that they received from the father. End quote. Brothers and sisters, if we are ever feeling like we are not good enough for God's love, let us remember that it's already ours. If we ever catch ourselves serving out of sheer duty, trying to earn God's approval, let us remember that we already have God's approval. God's love will never be taken away as a punishment. God's love will never be given to us as a reward because it is not a matter of what we do or not do. Rather, it is a matter of who God is and who we are as children of God. This Lenten season, as we come near to the cross, let us approach it with confidence, knowing that God's love never runs out on us. And let us proclaim that love everywhere we go. Amen.